Welcome back to the Testing Habits podcast after a rather long spring break. So in this episode, I'm talking with a bunch of people from different organizations. So this is a very interesting discussion with Raluca Marinescu, Traction Control Engineer at Alstom, and Darren Smalley, Brake Subsystems Manager at the same company. They are joined by Muhammad Abbas and Sarmad Bashir, researchers and PhD students at Rice and Meladolid University, and Sean Malm, teacher and PhD student at the same university, all working in close collaboration in several several research projects. So we cover some ground related to model-based system engineering, test automation, testing, simulating, uh, requirements engineering, code quality. And now I bring you Raluca Marinescu, Darren Smalley, Muhammad Abbas, Sarmad Bashir, and Shal Malm. Enjoy. Yeah, um, thank you everyone for 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 coming. Um, I, it's a pleasure to have you all here. Um, I was thinking to start with a very simple question, uh, mainly addressed to Alstom and to Raluca and Daran. So, uh, why did you join Smart Delta? Um, yeah, we uh, we talked about this one before, and I was there from the beginning, so I guess I can answer that one. Uh, well, the, when we were in uh, shift beforehand, uh, we saw some of the good work coming from this and a lot of potential for different tools and different ways of working. Um, from the, the team in here, when uh, we had a bus come over and show the potential of using the Vara tool, um, that was looking really promising. So we saw that the Smart Delta had possibilities of continuing uh, this development. So we could also keep focusing on improving our software development and requirement handling. Uh, and since we worked, uh, I believe, quite well together in Shift, um, it was a, a great opportunity to continue that work into Smart Delta. Uh, mm -hmm. Smart Delta also, yes, we do have handle a lot of variants. Uh, so once we developed our new way of working, with our new products, then the Smart Delta was a way to try and understand the best practices and improvement on how we should do product handling. Uh, as we're slowly rolling out uh, this product to almost around 10 projects now, um, you start seeing some issues popping up and uh, getting quite a bit of lessons learned about the, the good side and the bad side about how we're handling product development mm. and rolling out to projects. So hence, Smart Delta is supporting us with that. So that's why we uh, jumped into Smart Delta. Mm. Seems like a good reason. Um, so may maybe I can ask a follow-up. Um, so you're, I mean, developing pr products uh, in the railway domain. I guess there are different uh, systems you're developing um, inside Alstom that will go on the train. Um, how how are you working um, with development engineering? You, you have different practices, I guess. Um, anything that you know, uh, anything interesting that you want to share on how you're working, uh, developing software and systems. That's a huge question. Uh, so I know. I think I'll give one, and I'll pass off to a looker as well. Um, so I think the, since you mentioned the rail domain and therefore from our perspective, 
uh, as we develop products, we're developing it to conform to standards and norms and safety levels to so we can ensure that it works as intended on the train. Um, and what is different is there's different interpretations of that standard and how you interpret that standard will determine how you create an efficient software development workflow. So as people interpret it differently, you actually start seeing different software development workflows, which is really interesting that there's still a lot of uh, human involvement and human is not 100% precise and there still is some leniency even with standards. Uh, that's what yeah. I'm finding really interesting from the uh, software development in the rail industry. Rilke, mm -hmm. what about yourself? I don't know, Eddie, can you repeat the question? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm interested in what kind of you know engineering practices you you use. For example, it could be um, your your that agile or model-based system engineering or product line engineering. I'm more interested in those techniques and how you are working with them. So reflecting a bit on on this, I would have to come back to what that said. Um, take Agile, for example. So, of course, we want to work Agile, but we work with a standard that has a V model in it. So, so we are working as Agile as we can, but we still have a standard to follow. We still have a process with gates and checks uh, at a specific checks at the specific gate that we have to obey it by, but uh what is not really demanded by the standard then it's where we can improve we can optimize we can look at uh state of the art state of the practice um and things like that but we still have a standard in the background and we still have to abide by that standard mm. so yeah yeah, so in, in yeah, just as a, as a follow up, um, maybe I can ask, uh, I can ask Daran is like, because I, I guess you're, you're, um, you're using, you said you do, you have, of course, you do produce um, 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 products that are quite different, and they are, I guess, variants of each other, you're doing some type of product line engineering. So how do you handle, you know, variability? Um, it's there's a lot of uh, legacy ways of working that came in here um, and you've got the existing projects that are executed and you have effectively you have a team of different architects that communicate with each other about what is happening inside the projects and that information is then coming back to feed into what the product should be should work like. So it is a lot of uh, people interaction and it's not such a formal way of working. So the power of Fika is still quite powerful here. Um, but once you go from a product to a project, you're doing a clone and own principle. So you clone the uh, product and put it in the project. And then the full focus of the project is to execute that project just enough to meet the standards, the safety norms and the customer needs. Uh, so the product is trying to think of a bigger market and the projects are just doing just enough um, and driving hard to complete that objective. So the way of handling the product is, yes, a lot of interaction 
with different software developers and software architects. Mm. Very interesting. Um, yeah, and this, I guess, goes hand in hand with um, with system engineering. And uh, I, I, I assume you're using different tools for developing your software and your system. Um, what kind of you know tools you're using for uh, managing you know the complexity, system complexity, or and developing software, generating maybe code. Software complexity. That was an interesting one. Um, the complexity side. This is when we started looking at variance as a tool that came up pure variance as well, and that was looked at from the organization. Uh, Magic Draw also looked at the organization. Um, and now System Composer as well with uh, mm. Simulink in the background. So uh, when we first moved to the model-based system engineering approach, uh, we started to use a lot of modeling. We then tried to incorporate within those models the variant handling mechanisms. Um, so you can handle those variants based upon what you hear from the projects and experience from our um, senior experts. Mm -hmm. So they've um, built up a product with the knowledge they have of different variants, as long with information from projects. And then on the top level inside your project um, product is you have a variant handling, which says, OK, which variants are we using based upon the system that we're controlling? Mm -hmm. um, so when we're looking at that complexity, uh, we are only ever looking based upon the knowledge of the senior experts and then hmm. creating a, a variant hailing matrix to say which options are we including or not. Um, yeah, I mean, I was I was including also maybe tools like Simulink, I guess, in this category, like where because it helps you manage also system complexity to some extent um, compared to other tools. Um, is, I'll pass off to a look at that. Yeah, I'm yeah. thinking of what's the tools today then. So when it comes to tools, I think we use the classic. We will use doors for requirements, and then we use Simulink for modeling, code generation, some tests as well we can do in Simulink, uh, and so on. And <clears throat> of course, uh, trying to keep up with the Simulink developments, like trying to incorporate System Composer, which is a bit of a newer toolbox, is is also within our focus mm -hmm. uh, a bit um yeah and the variant handling did you did what i described make sense or is it a bit i think it's interesting it's an interesting question i think if you look at let's say traction control we are a system that has a lot of variants so we need to produce code that Yes, for AC system, DC system, uh, motion cooled, force cooled, you have a lot of, of, of variants within our system. So how we work, how, how we define our variants and how we work with, with variants is always a bit of a question. I think Simulink has provided, from a tooling perspective, Simulink has provided good enough support for us to be able to model and to generate code from, from models that have these variants in them. So um, 
I think what I can say is that we are at the stage where probably our models can keep up with the complexity of the systems that we are trying to design. Mm. And, this, and this, then we generate code from those models. That's a plus. When you're talking about systems, so we see a very strong correlation between our variance and the hardware. Yes. So as the hardware changes, our software has to adapt. Yes. So we're very dependent upon the hardware configuration. Yes. And that's like the first first variation. And then you have, of course, very specific requirements that come from a project, but that's further down the line as well. Yeah, I mean, this is very interesting. And I think the complexity of developing such uh, systems is um, yeah, affecting um, how efficient and how effective you are, I mean, during during development. Um, um, maybe I can I can uh, now um, go to the other side uh, um, of uh, of the you know use case from from Alstom. Um, I know that there are some cool tools developed by uh, people at Meladala University, Rise. Um, I guess it's Efac. There are other companies in in the comp in the, in the project and universities um, that are developing tools for improving some parts of. Uh, um of your development process so i'm 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 wondering let's start from maybe the requirements engineering side maybe you have uh, we have something to say sarmad about the tools that can be helpful to alstom and uh, how how are these tools applied yeah so basically we are looking at uh, automating different parts of the requirements engineering process at alstom so given uh, a particular use case where uh, this requirements engineering process as other companies starts from, uh, let's say, uh, uh, from the pro project acquisition. So initially it starts with the tender documents. So in these tender documents uh, at Alstom, they get these uh, documents as textual ones and it uh, may contain a lot of potential requirements and these potential requirements are being identified by the vehicle team and internalized uh, by them manually so what we are trying to do at rise is automate this process by using large language models which are nowadays uh, very buzz uh, within the computer science domain uh, given the release of chat gpt as well so they at the back end they are we are using uh, basically language models that can help us identify the potential requirements in these large tender documents. So instead of going uh, through the process manually, we can just pass, let's say, a PDF file to uh, the pipeline, and then we extract the text from it, pass it to the mo language model, and then identify like the these chunk of text are either requirements, potential requirements, or just the supporting information, and uh, give the uh, output again a PDF file with highlighted potential requirements so uh, it can facilitate the process uh, uh, fasten up the pipeline in order to identify it and then they can focus on other parts of the requirements engineering process that is basically once these requirements are identified and agreed upon they can be allocated to different teams for uh, development so this is one part on which we are working on you know Mm. Um, kind of Very a follow cool. up uh, to this is: Have you seen many variants between 
um, different requirements. So they have the same functional desire, but they're written in different ways, mainly because they'll be written by different authors, different uh, from outside customers. Are uh, you also seeing a lot of variance there? And how are you thinking of managing those variants in the grammar and the text and the words used? Yeah, Bas, do you want to take this one or should I? Yeah, you can talk about. Uh, yeah, well, we initially, uh, Saramad, you can talk about how we remove uh, duplicates maybe from the tender yeah, account. So, yes, there are a lot of, uh, let's say, uh, similarities or uh, different in these different requirements we can say like as they are allocated to let's say different teams so they have different variations in it so firstly we do a lot of pre-processing before uh, fine-tuning these large language models because we see that let's say uh, a chunk of text is similar to the other one and uh, like they have a similarity of let's say 90 percent but uh, if we train the model, the model will be confused and it could be identified as requirement, but it could be allocated to same team, although they were uh, uh, should be allocated to like different teams. So based on that, we uh, 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 skim those requirements. We uh, detect those similarities and then uh, assign them, um, mainly improve them and uh, consider them as a single requirement in order to uh, train those models. So there is a lot of pre-processing involved in it and also the post-processing as well. So one part was the identification of requirements. Here we are just pre-processing it and then uh, the goal is to just identify the requirements. Once these requirements are identified, we then automatically allocate them to different teams. Here, the other part involves of looking at these similarities or variabilities between these requirements. So they could be uh, allocated to their own teams uh, with higher accuracy. And here we basically apply different post uh, processing steps. So, yeah, and maybe I can add if that's okay, Eddie. Of course. Yeah, so. Uh, well, with regards to the variance, is Sarma's research is mainly on uh, identifying the requirements within the tender documents and then looking for a particular team which can implement those requirements. So the variance in itself doesn't matter that much if we have, like, let's assume 90% similarity with another requirement, which is based on, let's say, uh, the the which is making the trend two motors or four motors or so on. So this variance doesn't matter since it will be. Uh, assigned to the same uh, team anyway, uh, because that same team is responsible for for their specific part of the the trend. Uh, it starts to play a little bit bigger role uh, in the sense if you are trying to find uh, reusable components uh, in the later phases, which uh, we are also uh, developing, like the tool chain, which starts from these tender documents. Then we allocate them to teams, and then we try to find reusable uh, assets uh, in form of simulating models to be to be reused. And there, it could be a little bit of a problem. Uh, and the way to deal with it is currently we are extending these approaches to to compare these requirements, but also look into the actual configuration parameters of these simulating models and see how does this small 10% of difference between the requirements affect the configuration parameters in these uh, models. Uh, we have thought about it and uh, not looked in, uh, into it yet. So we are uh, trying to, to also look into that. Hmm. Very interesting. 
Um, I'm so you, I mean I guess there are, there are other tools that are used or the requirements level. Um, the, maybe you can say a couple of words um, about I guess since you already started talking about VARA and uh, about you know re, re reuse analysis. How is this done uh, in this uh, on on the on the Alstom use case? Yeah, so within the scope of Smart Delta, so VARA is coming actually from the Shift project as a prototype tool, but now what VARA means is it's a tool chain. Uh, hmm. So it starts with uh, uploading PDFs from tender documents to support the vehicle teams in identifying requirements from these tender documents. And this, uh, the the aim with this whole uh, tool chain is to, we, we are calling it VARA Plus, which also incorporates, uh, incorporates research of some then uh, asset tries uh, other people too. And also your tool there, uh, so, something which uh, I think one of your student and you did. So what we are doing there, uh, we had a small demo uh, with Daran to, uh, so this tool basically is a tool chain which first identifies requirement in the tender documents. And before actually assigning them to uh, to teams for implementation, we do some quality checks based on uh, a tool by Maradalans University, which is open source. So we took the code and uh, ported it into our pipeline uh, with a little bit of improvements. And there what we are after is uh, identifying requirements which are more complex or uh, that could be interpreted subjectively or uh, that uh, the read, uh, they are not readable and so on so we are we compute a uh, certain number of metrics on them uh, and, and uh, particularly the important ones are readability index and complexity and subjectivity and with these metrics we also highlight the exact parts on where the requirements should be improved and after the requirements are improved there they could be assigned to different teams for implementation. Once the requirements are there, we actually go into um, the simulating models and uh, look into like uh, where were the existing requirements linked uh, to which simulating model. And based on that, uh, what we do is we have a recommender system called Vara, and that uh, uh, particular part of the tool is responsible for uh, generating reuse recommendations based on uh, requirement similarity. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm. I know about this tool, and I think it's cool that um, it's applied in, on 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 the Alstom case. And I, I'm. Um, I maybe I can come back. We can come back to this later. I want to just hear from Raluca or Daran. You can decide who wants to answer. I know that you so that you're you're. I, going back to the software so now after the requirements are written you reused then you you have to develop and test the um, um the software how i know that you're using simulink and how can simulink be used for test automation and continuous integration um i'll pass off to look if that's not even okay so test automation, uh, that's a difficult one because, I mean, when you say test automation, the first thing that comes to my mind is automatic test generation. Mm -hmm. And Simulink has a toolbox for that. It's called Simulink Design Verifier, where you can basically generate a test for a specific model. Well, that was based on code coverage, 
Yes, in an attempt to reach 100% code coverage. So this is purely uh, to cover code. It's not based, it doesn't take um, requirements or anything as that as an input. So we have looked at that and we have decided that the readability of those test cases was not very good for what we were aiming, uh, for the test that we were aiming. So then we decided that manually written tests, even in simulink, are the best option for us. So basically what we do now when it comes to testing, we look at our requirements, we look at our specification, and then we write test specification based on those, and then we run uh, the tests in, in simulink. So we have a big test suite for all um, of our components where you have, yeah, all the tests there. Um, so to clarify, so the test specification is written in Simulink, so it's an executable yeah. test specification. Uh, yes, I think exactly. the other one is uh, with the paper when we had a student work for us, Anton, who looked at Design Verifier and looked at these automatic test case generation. Yes. And the conclusion from the paper and what we believed here in Alstom as well is that there's another uh, tool inside of it called Bug Finder, and that's now looking at your mathematical model and trying to find dead code. And we yeah. found that more valuable than automatic test case generation based on code coverage. So, Sorry, so Stimulink designed the verifier. I mean, just to has a model checker behind it, and it uses a model checker to generate the test cases, and it has certain properties. It can check certain properties with this you can check division by zero that code uh there's some some few others there um so yes while we we didn't think that the, the the code generation was for us there are some interesting features there mm -hmm. and i think this is something that it will also might be extended over time. So as new releases of MathWorks will come in the future years, it can be even more interesting to to keep an eye out on what they're doing with this toolbox. I think we also yeah. used the conclusion. Uh, so there's when Anton was here doing the work, uh, he found these issues using those tools. And then that resulted in a few of our models actually being updated based on that feedback. So our senior expert wasn't aware of it, so this helped highlight to him that, oh, there is something that needs to be changed. And that mm. was on about 2% uh, of our models. Yeah. It resulted in updates, so it did support us. Are you continuing with your <laughs> verification? Yeah, so basically what we do is that once a software component is being tested, if we consider that the result matches the specification, the test results is according to the test specification, then we capture a run on, on those test cases and then we save them later on. And every time we do a baseline, we run our tests again and we compare with this baseline results. And then this is um, another way to basically use Simulink when, when it comes to testing our software components. Do you want to go into the test assessments as well? <laughs> it depends uh, on you <laughs> so, if you want to go into that. So Simulink has a way to automatically write your checks. Uh, so basically 
you feed it your input and you can define mathematical uh, mathematical syntax for what is your expected output. That can use temporal logic or basic, um, yeah, um, basic uh, a, a basic structure to to write what's your expected output. Um, we we use that a lot for our simple simplified models. Uh, some of our components are quite complex, and it becomes extremely difficult to write what you expect on the output if you want to use this type of checks. So because of that. Um, we decided that it's just easier to just look at the specification and say, okay, this is what I'm expecting on the output, and then visually inspect the signals and say, is this correct? Yes. Is this correct? Yes. Is this correct? And the test passes. Yeah. Um, again, um, it's uh, it's something that we would, we found that works for us, and I think this is also because people who were using our previous systems, they didn't had any options to to write automatic checks. So people are used to looking at the output signals and evaluate if the system is implemented correctly or not. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, very good. Um, um, um. Very good description of what you mean, what you do in, in the test automation field, which I, I really appreciate because um, in actually in the industry, most of the people that when you tell them about test automation, they will assume that is the automation of the execution of the test cases. But in 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 when when you explain it, it was include it included not only the test automation framework in the execution of test cases, but also the that the test case design, the test generation part, which could be useful to, to some extent. I, I, I appreciate that. I think it's interesting. Um, but one, I'm, I'm, I will go now to Sean because I think he, <laughs> he, he can tell us more about what he's working with in the in the ABB use case. And I think what I've, I would ask him is we know that now, okay, so they produce a lot of code and test code. Can you maybe give me more details on how, you know, static analysis and automatic code review can improve the way uh, Alstom develops software and testware? Yeah, let's give it a try. Uh, I just want to, ah. No need to correct ABB to, to Alstom, I guess everyone knows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we started uh, ABB. <laughs> but, yeah, so I, my general research is looking into the automation of, of the quality assurance process. So you have um, you have a boss and Sarmad who are dealing with the requirements and, and these kind of things, and then that gets then implemented, and then something needs to be checked that, that this is actually implemented in a correct way according to the different safety standards, but also the internal standards that there are that are at, at Alstom. So uh, I evolve 
it's already been, been mentioned a bit that uh, the work is, is mostly done, the development work is, is mostly done in, in this uh, MATLAB Simulink. And so Simulink already provides quite quite a decent toolbox of, of uh, static checks on, on models. Uh, on the model level, and then you also mentioned this uh, bug finder, which is a um, the polyspace bug finder, which is which will then you do static analysis on on the C and C code. So, what I'm trying to to do is mostly to enable uh, this sort of of checks to be done earlier in the process, because one of the downsides with uh, using sort of what I would say call traditional static analysis tools is that they require C code, for example, and then the code needs to be generated, which is a non-trivial process in, in terms of, of time. And if you're a developer and you want to uh, check something, you, you may not want to to wait for for this information to go through the pipeline of, of first of all being generated and then being fed through a potentially expensive static analysis process. So what we are looking at is how we can sort of shift these. Uh, first of all, what what sort of analysis are currently being done on on the code level that can potentially be shifted to to the uh, model level. Um, but also uh, if there are things that are not done uh, automatically uh, at the moment, then how can we enable the aut automation of, of uh, certain quality requirements when it comes to, to the model-based model development uh, requirements that are, are agreed upon by by the company mm. very interesting huh? yeah sorry go ahead um, now i was on a follow-up for sean and i know that we looked at uh, one of them which was uh, do how we handle signal naming convention and so forth um and you had some really cool initiatives of like when you go googling something you write some letters and it gives you a proposal um, a similar concept was then raised, which was uh, if we start proposing uh, the what people what the designers think they want to have, then you actually start getting something that's more consistent. Mm. Um, I'm wondering, uh, have you had any feedback on that tool, and are you noticing any consistency improvements as uh, engineers are given suggestions? Not. Not as of yet. It's it's there were engineers that that were positive uh, about the tool, but it it is available to them. Uh, but I I need to do a bit of of uh, work because there are, there are currently things in the backend that that might not be suitable for. And there are I I should say that the tool as written is quite tied to the official guideline documents. Uh, then I noticed when I started looking into the the, uh, the models that there are deviations of, from the standard naming uh, for uh, specific reasons. And I've, I've heard 
um, discussions that this is is something that potentially should be left uh, on to the developer itself that there should be some some way to locally say that okay I know that these are the requirements but I will deviate because of clarity or because of reasons and then this is something that you can specify in the uh, for example in, in this kind of um, doc block or some, some documentation for the model itself and then this is something that I would I would uh, like to be able to provide but then I need to, to figure out how how this can be uh, essentially specified so that the tool can can uh, sort of ignore these kind of uh, violations and that there are a, a number of, of special cases so the, the tool is looking at that probably the vast majority of signals should be should be okay but then there are, are specific cases that that need to be handled uh, with a bit more care. Mm. Very interesting. Um, I'm I'm wondering now. Maybe I can ask a more controversial co question now, and see where we get. Um, we there is this move towards more you know automation and use use uh, of. Uh, machine learning or artificial intelligence to during development of um, of safety critical software. So there are different tools that one can use to you know improve the way um, you the way you develop um, software. And I wonder how much you think about um, you know um, the challenges of using such system and the over-reliance on the results of automation you know you trust the results but you don't really <laughs> check if that's the case or if there was a mistake uh, i wonder how do you take that into account and not only now but also for the future um, when you we rely more and more on tools that um, provide us uh, um, results based on historical information and um, yeah, I don't know who wants to take this on. I can give it a shot. There's, there's multiple things to your question, and I'll try and give enough time to everyone, so I'll try and be concise. Um, there's something we've been looking into is the concept of reusable code. It's, it's allowed within inside the standard. And the concept there was, I don't really know what was the verification performed on a particular chunk of code because I may have got it online or from somewhere, but I can use that code. I can read the data sheet on the code saying how to integrate it. Um, I will integrate that code into my system and then I'm going to treat it like a black box. So I'm going to perform all the different tests to ensure that this code is going to work as intended in all the different scenarios that is specified on the software development. So when we consider AI generated code in that context, we can also consider that in the same way, which is it becomes a black box, but then the responsibility for verification because it becomes more onerous that you have to ensure that that black box will behave as intended. So with AI creating small library blocks um, or they're creating small components that are not very complex, that's fine because you there's not too many test cases that you have to perform to ensure it behaves as intended as that black box gets bigger and bigger, then we have to handle a lot more verification scenarios. 
Um, so therefore, it's a lot more onerous on the verification aspect. Um, so as of today, that means that we would have a shift from the effort being on design to the effort being on verification. Mm. Um, so that's one aspect. The second one, you said reliance on tools and infrastructure. Um, we have seen in the past that uh, when we run a certain way and the computer says, yes, this is okay, um, that you start trusting it more and more, the more reliable that is. So the, the false positives and false negatives and all the issues you're going to see um, on programs that you trust, you're less likely to find them. And to ensure that this isn't a significant problem on the train, you still have uh, the essential tests that you always run, that then you have to have that person or an expert to look at them. Mm. Um, so it is a problem. We have noticed the problem and we kind of have different stages of testing and to ensure that you always check all the safety features are go working as intended. So the worst yeah. case situation is you end up in a safe state. And yeah. so safety first. <laughs> yes, exactly. No exception. Um, yeah. How we visit, that's how I've witnessed this uh, trend towards the AI. So more on the verification than design. Mm -hmm. Any other opinions or? Anyone else? <laughs> Well, I would just add, sorry, uh, just add what, just a small thing. We are bound on the standards that we have to follow. So within that standard, yes, a bit of flexibility here and there, but at the end of the day, we have to deliver a software that is developed according to the standard that we work with. So yes, that's... Um, mm. That uh, doesn't leave us with a lot of room. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Abbas, you wanted to say something. Uh, yes, so I was just saying that uh, it's also interesting to look at because uh, the AI that we are doing uh, in the different projects is not part of the system that they have to to show compliance uh, with different st safety standard. I mean, it's a problem if AI is part of the system and the, the, the system has to get a certification, but uh, probably it's not a big problem if uh, the process is supported by AI. For instance, um, the process of recommending reuse uh, is, is something that they don't have to uh, uh, that doesn't ha have to go through the, the safety compliance. Uh, yeah. So this is one thing. And uh, another um, interpretation, when I see the train industry, it's quite old. I think they have to move because AI is now everywhere. Automation is everywhere. And probably they need more updated standards, uh, particularly core these cases and before that I was also working with some uh, aviation industry in Pakistan and we also noticed that they cannot even use basic object-oriented concepts such as polymorphism because the DO178C standard uh, dictates to, to use like uh, decades old C for instance so they can yeah yeah but maybe, maybe that's C++. for maybe that's for the better <laughs> <laughs> or for the worst <laughs> 
<laughs> I think it's maybe better not to use those concepts on avionics software. <laughs> I mean, I I have comments on the safety issues sure. of of object-oriented programming concepts, but that might be a different conversation. Oh no, no, I think I can hear a couple of. If you have a couple of words about that, I would be happy to hear that. I mean, it will cause. From what I understand, a huge issue in if you want to do any sort of certification because you it it's vastly more difficult to analyze and to and to prove that uh, the, these kind of systems will hold certain certain properties um, because you cannot rely on on the code alone. You need some sort of information about the runtime when you have mm. this kind of, I mean, polymorphism. Because you then then you have virtual functions, which means that a function call can actually go to a place that you're not sure of. So I mean, it it makes the processes that that we have to do certification. I think quite quite a bit more uh, expensive, mm. and if that is is something that would then uh, require us to start using AI, then that 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 mm. will be an arm arms race, I think. Yeah, yeah. I I, I totally agree, and I maybe I can just say that I think the question came also from the fact that I I think the use of AI uh, during development. Of, of systems. So this is something that, um, for example, it, the, we have a lot of research efforts that are providing improvements in specification, analysis, testing. Then you have um, a lot of tools and techniques for the development and analysis of the system. And what for me, from my perspective, is largely missing in current research efforts, it's a dis the discussion of how we will be able to trust our powerful automated techniques enough to allow us to use them as a replacement for something that we do traditionally. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying that, of course, in the also with the um, with the notion that I know how much improvement this can be gained by using these techniques. But if the code generation is incorrect, for example, the resulting implementation will naturally be incorrect. And it might not be code since we're not reducing testing in the code domain. We are now reducing testing in the code domain, I guess. But if, for example, if the analysis tools applied to the models provide false negatives, they fail to catch a faulty model. And then we might generate <laughs> code that is incorrect. So that's um, my, my, my fear comes from the fact that, yeah, we need to understand better this but i i really like your perspectives i think it's good to have different perspective on this um i think it's um it might be good to know that i guess there's there's two aspects one is the human in the loop versus human outside the loop so as you talked about the suggestion based which means the tools no matter how they're created are only providing suggestions and that is it so that is supporting the workflow by providing suggestions to the designer or verifier you have the next one, which is it is a trusted tool. So um, I just need to look at the output and I can trust it's done everything else correctly. Um, and there's different rankings for those type of tools as well, which is your T1, T2, T3 tools. And depends on what part of the process are affecting those different levels of scrutiny on those tools. 
Um, so what we're finding is things that are moving quickly, like the AI domain and so forth, we try and keep the human in the loop. Um, but that means there's more ownership on the tool developers that when the tool is created and provides suggestions, um, it needs to be created in a way that a human can read it. Um, and then you have to go from that machine world to a human interface. And that is not always uh, easy to do. It's not a trivial task to be able to explain to the engineer or whoever's reviewing the advice why he came up with that suggestion. Mm. That's a good point. Um, of course, there is this always this problem, even if the tool is suggesting something, if um, the, the human, it's in our human nature to, you know, to get those suggestions and think, well, um, they might be true just because a tool generated those. So um, there is this over-reliance even in suggestions, um, um, especially for people that I guess they're in the beginning. I think it's an interesting problem. Sorry, I didn't know. Abbas, yes, you wanted to say something. Yeah, so one thing that we did in this regard was also to uh, generate explanations, especially in the work uh, where we are uh, allocating requirements to different teams. And the idea being that uh, deep neural networks or large language models are not explainable by itself. So it makes decisions by crunching some numbers and humans might not know. Uh, but well, there is traditional AI, which makes decisions on very lexical uh, features, for instance, uh, are rule-based approaches. And uh, the idea there is that you could combine the two and uh, try to generate explanations. And in those case, uh, cases, what we did is, what we did is retrieved uh, five most similar requirements and see how much of those were allocated to uh, which teams for, for implementation, for example. And that is the 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 uh, the help that the extra help that we provide to the the requirements engineer for for um, allocating requirements to different teams. So we do a prediction based on some uh, number crunching that we cannot explain. But then we use traditional AI to say, okay, here is uh, the five most similar requirements that were allocated to this team, which can help bring up uh, new information and help support the decision of allocation. Uh, in that particular case. Mm. Think, thanks, Abbas. Yeah, I, I think this is a really good example of how to improve such tools so that uh, they are you 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 can trust the results more and the explanations make sense more sense. Um, I think this is a very good point. So maybe we're actually we're getting maybe towards towards the end, but um, I was I wanted maybe to ask an overall question is. Since Alstom in Smart Delta is interested in, you know, trying to incorporate, for example, product line updates into existing application, maybe the efficient evolution of software artifacts, or te test automation. There are different aspects here, how to improve model-based system engineering, I guess. Um, I'm wondering what, how do you expect Smart Delta could help with this? And this is maybe mainly um, a question to uh, Daran and uh, Raluca. Uh, it sounds like a question you ask at the start. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was going to say, now it's easy because you just heard what's, what uh, we have from Sama, Sean, and Abbas. Um, so what they're working on, that's what we would like to use. Um, when you're 
uh, in general with the product uh, engine, product line engineering. Again, we had the requirements, we had the customer projects, we see variants there, and we have uh, a lot of work there from Samad and Abbas, and really keen during this project to take what they have, test it out on a few different projects. And then as we progress through the development is to use Sean's advice and uh, updates to improve our automation of these checks and see if we can gain more consistency in our products. Um, as we increase the consistency in our products and make sure we're following a standard, it means we can easily move between product line and project work because you see more consistency in both environments. Uh, so this, this uh, people don't have to keep uh, rereading the same code and see the variance between projects and products as much. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah, oh, sorry. sorry, go ahead. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I was like, this is a good, it's a good point uh, um, that, I mean, this is a question that you would ask in the beginning, but I'm asking it at the end because now you heard <laughs> quite a lot. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm curious how, what, what do you expect? Smart Delta could help, you know, in the future, um, and uh, what what needs to be improved, and what's the next step. But I think it's a very good answer. Sorry, Raluca. Uh, no, it's something else. I guess I would I would like to add to that is we, we and Raluca and myself and coming back from the mindset of traction, and so we're talking about consistency and all the improvements, but we're also working within uh, other departments. So we've got our train control monitoring system as well and supporting them. So the more consistency we have between the two departments means it's more easy for teams to work together and to share information between each other and share code between each other. And as I mentioned at the very beginning of the podcast, I've gone to breaks and we're starting from a, a blank piece of paper. It's not really true, it's not really blank. We're trying to take what we can from traction and try and reuse as much as we can and using what we've had from Smart Delta. So smart delta is not just affecting one side of Alstom, it's affecting a few different departments. Um, Did I look at? I don't know if you wanted to say something, but I. I I was I I think what I I find interesting about smart delta is that we have had several PhD students and coming and sitting with us, and I think that has a huge impact because if you look at people who work at Traction, for example, we really focus on developing our products and making our deadlines. That's our focus. And yes, we have a really good state of the practice. We use a lot of tools that help us with code generation and developing our systems as fast as possible, reuse, to reuse as much as possible and so on. But at the end of the day, we're focused on developing our products and meeting our deadlines. Now, when you have people from academia then come and sit with us, you know, you know your state of the art, and then you can see exactly where you can help. And I think that's also really good because if you have spent a bit of time with us, you know, looked at our way of working and the problems that you have, you can come and you can suggest things that perhaps we didn't consider before. And you also have a bit of time and flexibility to do a proof of concept on these things. So then when we see them in practice, they become more relevant for us and easier to adopt than if you say, hey, can you please read this paper? <laughs> so yeah, I, I think it was a, it is a really nice setup in, in Smart Delta. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, this is a. I I think this is a very good, a very good um, way to end this podcast. I think it was very 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 nice to to hear you all, um, and uh, I appreciate you doing this. Thank you for giving us your time. It's been a pleasure. Yes, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you.